Well, good afternoon. It is an honor to be with you. It really, truly is. I'm move this up a little bit. So it is really, I'm honored to be allowed to speak with you uh, this afternoon, and I'm, I'm really excited to get into this. So I want to go ahead and get into prayer. All right. Father, we kneel before your throne, sinners in need of much grace and mercy. We confess that your law is holy, just, and good, and that law condemns us but points us to Christ as the only way to life. We thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit that confronts and comforts us as we gaze at your attributes on full display. Please open our hearts as we glean from the infallible and all-sufficient word you have given us. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So, like I said, I'm, I'm very excited this morning to get into this. Um, it may be kind of a familiar story that we're going to be going over this a- uh, afternoon, but there really is a lot of depth here that I want us to see and, and glean from. As we go through this, it's going to be Christ through it all. Now, we're primarily going to be in Daniel chapter 3, but to ensure that we get the full weight, the full measure of Daniel chapter 3, we're going to go ahead and start in chapter 2. So if you turn with me to Daniel chapter 2, we're going to start off in verse 1. Now, I'm going to go ahead and give you a warning up front. We are going to be skimming through quite a bit on Daniel chapter 2. There are some very, very big events that happen, and we want to make sure and understand all of them. And we could easily do multiple studies on chapter 2. That's not going to be our main focus this afternoon. So Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. The Word of God says, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. The Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. And this is where it gets interesting. In verse 5, when the king replies to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. In verse 8, the king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, and as much as you have seen that the command from me is firm. We moved on to verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Down to verse 16. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. And then we pick it up in verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now our gem that we want to pull out from the rest of this chapter is Daniel interprets the dream for the king. It was a dream of this massive statue. And on the head of the statue was pure gold. Its breasts and its arms were of silver. Its belly and its thighs were of bronze. Its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as we see in verse 34, 
and this is Daniel still talking to the king, you continued looking until a stone was cut, with, cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And we see this as this foreshadowing of Christ being that chief cornerstone to come. Now Daniel gives the understanding of the dream to the king as Babylon being that head of the statue and his kingdom will be succeeded by other stronger kingdoms. And we being on this side of this know that the ultimate king is our Lord Jesus Christ because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And we were able to go down the statue just as the dream did. We have the head, this glorious kingdom of Babylon. Then we have the silver, the less glorious but stronger Medes and the Persians. And then the bronze would be the Greeks. And at the bottom we would see Rome. First Peter 2.6, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice cornerstone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And we move down to verse 44. Daniel still talking to the king. He said, in, those, in, the, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever. And as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future so that the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. You know, we see in verse 46, King Nebuchadnezzar falling on his face. And in 47, we see the king saying to Daniel, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole providence of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And in verse 49, and Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the administration of the providence of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Now the king praised God for revealing this mystery, and that's about as far as the text tells us. But this shouldn't have been a surprise to the king. Human kingdoms rise and fall constantly, and has been that way ever since the beginning of time. And as I was studying for this, I think James Boyce kind of puts it really clear for us, kind of gives us maybe what the king might have been thinking when he stated, but when the king Nebuchadnezzar got to thinking about the dream later on, he was not pleased. He must have said to himself, wouldn't it be nice if more of the statue were gold than just the head? The head represents me, and I'm glad I'm the head, but it would really be nice if the whole statue were gold, not just the head. Why should my kingdom be succeeded by other kingdoms? Why shouldn't this great Babylon that I have built last forever? And we're not told in chapter 3 where Daniel's at. There's some speculation, but that's not really our topic for this afternoon. But we do get to see where these three Jewish men come into play. And we see that in verse 49. So we're assuming that Daniel's at the king's court at the time that this takes place. And now we are fully caught up and ready for Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1 as we begin to unpack more of the significance behind this. Because now we're going to see this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had come to life. So as we start in chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width was 6 cubits. And he set it up in the plains of Dura, in the providence of Babylon. Now just kind of for our understanding, the plains of Dura was thought to be about 6 miles south, and was kind of a focal point of the whole kingdom. 
when it says the statue was about 60 cubits height. It's about 90 feet high and then nine cubits wide. That's about nine feet wide. So it's a very broad, very impressive statue. Verse 2, the Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the providence to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Now, just for our knowledge, the word satrap, it's, it's a Persian loan word. It kind of means protector of the realm. So it's a very specific type of office. Verse 3, then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the providence were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Now we see leaders and rulers from all across his kingdom as they come together on this plains of Dura, all across the corner of his realm. Now us being Christians, we kind of look at it as, isn't it funny or isn't it just like God to bring people from across the world, across kingdoms, different languages, so he can put his majesty and his glory on display? You know, I can't help but think of Pentecost as the Spirit moved through the disciples and every tribe was in Jerusalem and they were witness to the Spirit giving utterance to speak in languages they could all understand. Or of the exodus of the Jewish people as they uh, exited Egypt after the plagues. Or as the Red Sea parted in front of an entire army. Or on Jericho as the walls fell as the trumpets blast. Or on Calvary as the sky went pitch black after our Lord finished his work of propitiation. Back to our text, in verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psalter, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Verse 6. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psalter, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Verse 8, for this reason at that time, Certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Now, this, we can kind of infer, might have been politically motivated as these Jewish men had been put in office above them. And as we see down in verse 12, this is the Chaldeans speaking to the king about the Jews. Verse 12, There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the providence of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have discarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psalter, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made. And we see the end of verse 15. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? And Nebuchadnezzar 
unknowingly or maybe knowingly just challenged Yahweh, the creator of the entire universe, the one that sustained his entire kingdom, the one who gave breath in his life, in his lungs. We see in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And this is where we're going to stop right here. And there are some points I want us to look at and keep in the back of our minds as we go throughout the rest of this narrative. Our first point is going to be standing firm in obedience and faith. Our second uh, point is the persecution that comes to us all. Our third is the protection. And our fourth is going to be the praise. Now, I must say, alliteration is not exactly my strong suit yet, so I know that first point feels a little bit out of place. Um, but don't worry, we'll get there, and it'll make sense here in a few minutes. But I want us to see in here in this narrative shows us that even back then, even back then, the world and all its things and its rulers and all its rules and regulations, rules that tell us what to think or who we ought to be or how we ought to act or who we are to bow down to, I'm reminded so much of this today in our world of how when we look around us and we see the crowd all around us falling down to their knees and worshiping. Worshiping whatever the world tells them to, the, the idols it gives us, the media and television that, that shape our fallen culture, the murder of babies in the womb, the LGBTQ, P, I don't know, I think there's like 30 letters now and some symbols. I can't keep up. But it's even inside our church. These grotesque and monstrous doctrines that people promote, these false teachers. And as we look at the crowd all around us, Falling to their knees, look back at verse 7. All the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. But as they kneeled to their false god, we must stand firm to ours, the true, only, the only true and living God. We must stand firm on the truth of the gospel, not this watered down, you know, Jesus loves everybody and he needs us so badly. Or who wants to come and ask Jesus into their heart, pray this prayer, and then you can go on about your life living like as if nothing ever changed. It's impossible. This gospel we have is life-changing. It's earth-shattering for those who repent and believe as the Bible commands us. Or the other false thinking that God hates the sin, but not the sinner. That's not biblical either. Psalm 5.4 you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. I think as one pastor put it one time, it's not the sin that gets sent to hell, but the sinner. Before coming to Christ, we were all under that wrath all under that wrath of God. So if you are truly his, you will stand. You will be able to stand, stand as these men stood. The text makes no mention of them making a scene or riling up the crowd. They simply would not bow or kneel to this false image or worship. 
We have so many things in this world that goes against the word of God. But we must be willing to stand. Stand as the entire world crumbles around us. And I pray that for all of us and when we are confronted. Praying that we stand firm with both feet on the ground as the spirit strengthens our knees. Because we must stand. And you say, great, stand, got it. How? How do I stand? It's on those promises of God, those promises that give us strength as the Spirit gives us strength. These men stood in obedience to God and their faith and salvation. Look back at verse 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O King. They knew the promises of God. They knew how God delivers his people, and so do we. These same promises come from God's unchangeableness of his purpose. And in Hebrews, we see this hope. We have an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. And I want us just to hear just for a minute a small fraction of some of these promises because they're absolutely beautiful and so comforting. Isaiah 41.10, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Or Deuteronomy 31.8, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Psalm 32, 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the ways that you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Psalm 37, 23, the Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. Or Isaiah 40, 31, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And we could read on and on about these promises, but we would all be late for work. And there's a lot of kids in here, so school. We would. But these men stood on those promises, and it's the very same promises that we will stand on and swing out into eternity by. So it's the very same promises. You know, verse 17, if it be so, if God is willing, then he could, as all things are possible through God if it be so but look at verse 18 but even if he does not let it be known to you O king that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up and this is a really crucial theme all throughout the Bible all throughout the Bible of God's people being obedient no matter the consequences no matter the consequences does God save his people from certain harm of course he does But that's not always the case. And ultimately, it serves one purpose, one single purpose that we were created for. This was a very bold statement to the king, a resounding no. No, we will not serve your gods. They knew the commandments, and so do we. You don't have to turn there, but we see those in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself to carve image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. You know, and then we have these wonderful yet sobering words in James. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking for nothing. This is complete in Christ. Now, I know it feels like we're going on a little bit of a rabbit trail here, but 
How are we to stand firm if we don't know the reasons why we're standing in the first place? If we don't know the reasons, for what? For what is the purpose that we stand? It's for one single purpose. Sola de gloria. The glory of God alone. You know, I heard something that Paul Washer said one time, and it's, it's stuck with me for years now. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I'm, I apologize. But he was praying about his afflictions and some of the pain that he was having. And he stopped in the middle of the prayer, and he said, But God, if you can get glory for yourself, leave me unhealed. Leave me unhealed. You know, it's something I'll never forget. Father, if you can get glory for yourself, then leave me unhealed. At the end of the day, we're all created for one purpose, one goal, one aspiration, to glorify God. You know, how many books have been written? How many hours, days, months, years, decades, centuries has man contemplated the meaning of life or its purpose? And we have it. We have it. We have the truth. Isaiah 43, 6. I will say to the north, give them up. And I will say to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. And our second point this afternoon that we're going to look at is, as we start to kind of stack the bricks on top of each other is the persecution that comes to us all. This, first, this second point definitely builds off the first and this is not a question of if, but when. But when. We are told of what kind of crowd on that day will be surrounding us. On that day that we hear the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psalter, and the bagpipe. That crowd that will be surrounding us on that day. Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood on the plains of Dura, we will also stand in a crowd. And we know what that crowd is, and we see that crowd in 2 Timothy 3.1. As Paul says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. So knowing that the state of the crowd that will be surrounding us, what do we have to look forward to when the crowd turns its gaze on us? For we are to remember that armor that we put on, the armor of God, that we see in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, when he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, Stand firm, therefore, girded your loins with the truth, and having put on the breast, breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows from the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of spirit, 
which is the word of God, with all prayer, petition, pray at all times. And after we look up, after we put this armor on, after we put on this armor of God, we look up. We look up to the cross. We look up to Jesus, our only, our only Savior, who is now seated at the right hand of God Almighty. We have to look up because we will suffer. We will suffer for the gospel. We will suffer for our Lord and our Master. We will. Matthew 24, 9, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. But we also see the promises that are born in that suffering. It is so beautiful. Matthew 5, 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. Now look back at our text. Verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it's usually heated. Heat the oven seven times hotter. One commentary stated this is probably a hyperbole. It means heat the oven as hot as humanly possible. Yeah, I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for this Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And then we look and see the king in verse 20. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them in the furnace of blazing fire. In verse 21, Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, their other clothes, and they were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was so urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew the men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. I want us to, to even try and get a small glimpse or a fraction of what these men went through. The flames coming out of it, the roar of the fire being tied up, the heat coming off of it like a blow dryer one inch from your face. These three men knew they were about to die. The text doesn't say that they second-guessed themselves or made any kind of scene whatsoever. They were just simply tied up. Something as I was studying through this kept going through my mind over and over and over again, and that's found in verse 18. But even if he does not, even if he does not, even if he does not save us, even if we are not spared from the furnace, even if we melt like wax today before this raging fire, let it be known. Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods. This is absolutely amazing faith. And if you are his, if you are, when persecution, be able, uh, when persecution comes and your faith is tested, we only have one question to ask, and that is, even if he does not, even if he does not, will we be able to say that? 
but even if he does not. The fire was so hot that it killed the men that were just carrying Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up there. And they fell into the midst of the furnace. So we've seen our first point this afternoon, and that's, that's standing firm in obedience and faith. We've looked at our second point, which is the persecution that comes to us all. And now we're going to see our third point. Now stay with me. Do not miss this. Do not miss this. This is my favorite part of the entire narrative. So after this scene of the furnace of blazing fire, the heated as hot as humanly possible, the men who were trying to carry up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting killed themselves, and then the three falling in, tied up, we come to verse 24. And verse 24 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste and said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Oh, certainly, king. And he said, Look, I see four men loose and walking around in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Now, depending on what translation you have, which they don't really make any difference, but the NASB and the ESV both say son of the gods. The New King James Version says the fourth is like the Son of God. I tend to like the King James a little bit better on that one. But this is Christ. This is Christ. This is the co-eternal pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the very one that said, Abraham rejoiced at my coming. In the Old Testament, he's referred to as the angel of Yahweh. Christ was there in the midst of the fire with his people. He was there. He was there all throughout the Old Testament. He also appeared to Hagar, Abraham's servant who carried his child. He appeared to Abraham and stayed his hand from sacrificing his only son. He appeared to Moses in the burning bush. There are accounts throughout the Old Testament of Christ's appearance that we know this. We know it's him because of the language that was spoken and the worship that he received. We know. Verse 26 the Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. Verse 27, Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around in solemn regard to these men that the fire had no effect on their bodies, on the bodies of these men. Nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. And I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. This is one something I want you to see with your own eyes. Just the absolute beauty and splendor. Isaiah 43, verse 1. says, but now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the rivers, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel your Savior. And whatever we're going through, whatever trials and tribulations, we are commanded not to fear, for He has redeemed us. This is beautiful. I've called you by name. You are mine. Can we sit here and even fathom the creator of the entire universe who holds it all together, calls us by name, and says, you are mine. The one that spoke the entire world into existence out of nothing, 
out of nothing, called us by name, that he would even stoop down to us poor pitiful creatures and redeem us and save us. It's unthinkable, the horrible things that we've done, the stain of sin on us. And all the while, God says, you are mine. Christ was there in the Old Testament that pointed to his coming in the new. The new that pointed us to him and the attributes of God on full display. Which leads us to our fourth and and final point, and that is the praise. Look back at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own. You know, I'm reminded of Romans 12.1. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And we see in our text, in verse 29, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses made a rubbish heap. And in verse 30, the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the providence of Babylon. Now, I absolutely love hymns. I do. I absolutely love this. After seeing these men stand up to the king in obedience to God and the faith and their salvation, after reading how Christ, the salvation of us all, was there with his people in the midst of the fire, it brings us to only one place. Only one place. And that is the praise. Because Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger of sword? There was a hymn that was written in 1225 by Francis of Assis. It's based off of um, Psalm 148, and I'm, I'm kind of diving in the center of this, in the third stanza. But it says, And all ye men of tender heart, forgiving others, take your part. O sing ye, alleluia. Ye who long pain and sorrow bear, praise God, and on Him cast your care. O praise Him. O praise Him, alleluia. Let all things their Creator bless and worship Him in humbleness. O praise Him, alleluia. Praise. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. And praise the Spirit. Three in one. Oh, praise him. Oh, praise him. Hallelujah. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your great mercies and your grace that you give us that we need daily to even stand. We thank you and we pray that when persecution comes that we will be able to stand firm as these men stood 
as the Spirit strengthens our knees. Father, give us the strength as we cast our gaze upon our only way of life on that narrow road, through that narrow gate to our Savior and Master. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.